gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word, which helps us to see Jesus as he really is. And Lord, we know that as we see Jesus, we see you, Heavenly Father. But Lord, we are desperate for your Holy Spirit to guide us into your truth. We are desperate for your Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to us. For we know that we can study all we want, but unless you are working in our hearts, it's all in vain. So Lord, I pray that you would lend power to my words this morning, that you would help us all to see Jesus as he really is and to respond in faith and worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We finished John chapter 6 really on, on a, low part, at a low point. We just had the, the crowds following Jesus because he had fed them in the wilderness. He had miraculously fed them in the wilderness very, in a very similar way to what Moses had done in providing manna. And Jesus has taught that, that the manna didn't really come from Moses, that it came from God. And just as Jesus himself, God in the flesh, fed 5,000 men plus many women and children with a few small loaves and fishes. And at that point, it was, it was almost a crescendo as, as so many people were following after him but then almost immediately by the end of the chapter, they all left. There's only a handful of disciples left following him. First, the, the Pharisees had rejected him, then the crowds had rejected him, and now supposed disciples had rejected him. And here in chapter 7, the theme of rejection is continuing, and this time it's even closer to home. This past Wednesday, April the 10th, was National Siblings Day. Now, I'd never actually heard of National Siblings Day prior to this week. And I think if it wasn't for Facebook, I still wouldn't have heard of National Siblings Day. And I uh, just want to ask a question that will be of particular interest to the younger people here today. Is I want to ask you, how do you get along with your brothers and sisters? How do you get along with them? Do you love and adore them? Do you respect and protect them, or do you ignore and avoid them, or even tease and torment them? Now, my brother and I didn't really get along very well as, as we were growing up, and I need to probably take the lion's share of the responsibility for that. But my brother and I are extremely different. We don't even really look alike. He's a head person, I'm a heart person. He studied physical sciences, I studied the arts. He's interested in technology, I'm interested in nature. He's a homebody, I love to travel. But by far the biggest difference between us is our faith. He's agnostic, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So you might say there's some sibling rivalry between my brother and me, and I'm thankful that in, in recent years, and I'll say mainly because the Lord has changed me in my attitude that my relationship with, his bro with my brother is better now than it ever has been. In fact, I was really touched this week as he and his wife called to give, our to give their condolences to, to Jane and me. And, and 
And that's something that never would have happened um, a few years ago. And it's, it's really, as I said, it's a testimony to what God is doing in my heart as I change towards him. But sibling rivalry is really nothing new. It actually goes pretty much all the way back to the beginning. You find it throughout the Bible as Cain kills Abel, as Jacob steals Esau's blessing, as Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. But we really don't need to to look beyond the Bible in order to understand why this is. The reason why all of these things happened is because of the fall. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you see that the sin of Cain and killing his brother and and the sin of of Esau rejecting his birthright and, and of Joseph's brother selling him all go back to that first sin. They were inheriting their sin nature from their first parents. But psychologists really go a long way in order to try and understand what's happening, to understand the nature of sibling rivalry, how those in their, in their own families who really, if you, if you, if you understand the, the theory of evolution, which we reject, but if you understand the theory of evolution, then really brothers and sisters should be doing the most to help each other because it ensures that the gene pool of their parents goes on. But why is it that we so often save our worst behavior for those who are closest to us? Psychologists acknowledge that siblings are an integral part of most children's social worlds. The emotional ties between siblings are commonly second only to those between parents and children. Brothers and sisters can be a source of companionship, help, or emotional support. Older siblings can serve as caretakers, as teachers, as models. And sometimes they can even help compensate for absent or distant parents. And in the interactions with each other, siblings acquire many social and cognitive skills that are central to healthy social development. This is what psychologists tell us, but they don't understand the spiritual nature of families. They don't understand what is really going on. This morning, we're going to be considering Jesus' relationship with his own brothers. And we'll see a lot. It's very telling when we understand their response to Jesus, who was not really their brother, but their half-brother, the same mother, but a different father. We'll also see this morning the response of the Jewish authorities and the crowds to Jesus. So I'm going to be focusing here this week on verses 1 to 13 of John chapter 7. So there, after the mass rejection of Jesus in John chapter 6, Jesus remained in Galilee for a season rather than going to Jerusalem and going to Judea because the Jews, which is the religious authorities, wanted to kill him. Their anger had been mounting, but now it turned to open hostility. And this, the turning point, if you remember, happened in John chapter 5, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and then said that I and the Father are one. He was making himself equal with the Father. We read in John 5.18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, or so they thought, but because He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
So this, this season of ministry for Jesus between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 is roughly six months. Remember, Jesus fed the, the crowds around the time of the Passover in the spring, and it's now fall. It's now the time of the Feast of Booths, as we read in our, in our scripture. Now, this period, this six months, is really focused on quite a bit in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but John really skips over it altogether. He just, he just dives in here to the Feast of Booths. Now, this Feast of Booths, or Sukkot in Hebrew, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Ingathering, was at hand. And all the Jewish males were required to participate in this celebration. Detailed instructions for this feast are found in Leviticus 23, verses 39 to 43. So if you please turn with me in your Bibles there to Leviticus chapter 23. Verse 39. This began on the 15th day of the seventh month. And this falls in September or October in our modern Gregorian calendars. This is five days after the Day of Atonement. And the feast lasted for eight days. It began and ended with a day of solemn rest in which all regular activities were ceased. At the beginning of the feast, the people would take branches and palm fronds and make dwellings for themselves. And they would live in those dwellings for, this, for the period of that feast. People living in the cities would actually put the structures up on their roofs in order to, and they would actually stay in, the, in, their, in these, these huts that they'd made on the roofs or, or in their courtyards. And during this period of the feast, food offerings would be made to the Lord. Now this was part of the, the ceremonial law, and it was laid down to be a reminder of the Lord's provision for the children of Israel as he protected them and provided for them throughout the exodus from Egypt. By the time of Christ, it was customary for the procession to go to the pool of Siloam and then to draw out water from the well and then to go back and then to pour out the water as a libation or as a, as a drink offering to the Lord. Again, remembering how the Lord had provided for the people of Israel in the wilderness. This is, uh, is, we'll actually consider this more fully when we get down to verses 37 and 38, where Jesus says at the Feast of Booths, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we'll look at that in a few weeks. Also a part of this, the celebration of the Feast of Booths was the lighting of four large lamps in the, the court of the women. And the lighting of these lamps was to be a representation of the Shekinah glory or the, the presence of God in the temple from 1 Kings 8, verses 8, 8 to 11. And also the Heor Gadal, the, the great light which would come and bring light to those who were spiritually dead and dwelling in darkness from Isaiah 9, 2. Now we're going to see the importance of this when we study John 8. In verse 12, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus will come to the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, 
as the fulfillment of this aspect of the ceremonial law. And we'll see this in the coming weeks. But for now, the most important fact that we need to consider about this feast is that it was a time when Jerusalem would have been full of pilgrims. Countless thousands of people would have come to the city in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus' brothers said to him there in John chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, first of all, we need to read this, this passage in the most natural way. This, this literally refers to Jesus' natural brothers, or more correctly, as I said earlier, as half-brothers. They were the brothers and sisters of Jesus through Mary and Jesus' adopted father, Joseph. Mary was not, as Roman Catholics wrongly believe, a perpetual virgin. She had other children after Jesus. The scriptures clearly testify to this. In Matthew 13:55, when the people of Nazareth questioned Jesus' origins, they asked, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? So Jesus had brothers and sisters in a natural sense. So presumably we have here some combination of James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And they coaxed Jesus to leave Galilee and to go to Judea so that his disciples could see the miracles and the works that he was doing. So that he could reveal himself to them and to the world. But the brothers didn't know about the plot of the Jews. And moreover, as we'll see, they didn't know what Jesus was really doing. They were, as Gerald Borchardt explains, seeking to push Jesus into the public limelight. Their view of him apparently was that he was acting like a rural country prophet who was hiding his light under a bushel. So since there was a huge crowd gathered in Jerusalem, why not go there and reveal yourself? They're saying to him. Now, this was very likely due to the fact that, that as John had told us just in, in John chapter 6, that many of his apparent disciples had rejected him. So what they're probably saying is that, look, so that all is not lost, you can, you can recoup this. You can get these disciples back. Go when there's a big crowd. Those disciples who left you, they're going to be there too. They're going to see what you're doing, and they're going to be forced to believe in you. But they didn't understand God's timing. They didn't understand God's plan. They didn't understand that God was right there with them. As D.A. Carson points out, John the Evangelist doubtless sees irony in their request. Jesus' brothers want Jesus to put on a display. John's readers already know that such a display would pander to corrupt motives and in any case would not ensure genuine faith. John had just described in John chapter 6 how the crowds had wanted, after being fed, the crowds had wanted to force Jesus to be their king. Saw that in verses 14 and 15. And how they sought him because they'd eaten the bread that he had provided. John 6, 26. Kostenberger explains that their attitude re resembles Satan's 
at Jesus' temptation, who misconstrued Jesus' messianic claims in, seeking, in self-seeking terms, and that this is the height of presumption that the Messiah and Son of God is in need of their coaching. His brothers had no idea who he really was. His brothers wanted him to show himself to the world, but they didn't even know who he was. Now, it's not that they didn't believe that he could perform miracles. It's that they didn't understand what the miracles were all about. They did not understand who Jesus really was, and they did not understand the nature of his ministry or the timing of his ministry. John tells us in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' own brothers didn't even believe in him. This pattern of rejection now includes members of his own family. They were proving Jesus' statement from Matthew 13, 57 true. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. He was not receiving the honor he deserved. He was not receiving their worship. Mark 3.21 shows another telling scenario of his family's opinion of him. In Mark 3.21, we read, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. His family actually thought he was insane. Then a few verses later, in Mark 3, 31 to 35, we see Jesus' opinion of them. He says, when his mother and his brothers came, were standing outside and sent to him and called to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother, here is my mother, and here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So his own family at this point didn't even get it. But how could they miss it so horribly? After all, they'd grown up together. They'd seen Jesus' perfect behavior. I, mean, I know a lot of siblings complain that that they're being compared to their, their brother or sister. Imagine being compared to Jesus. We are compared to Jesus. He is the standard of absolute righteousness. Every other sibling has petty squabbles with his siblings and some not-so-petty squabbles. Like I said earlier, sometimes brothers save their worst behavior for one another. Many families look more like the early scene of seven brides or seven brothers with, with a knockdown, drag-out fight occurring that, that runs through the whole house. But not so Jesus. He never teased his brothers. He never tattled on them. He never so much as raised a finger against any of them. And not only that, he obeyed his earthly father and his mother perfectly unless he had business of his heavenly father that he had to attend to. But still, his brothers didn't get it. And why? Why didn't they get it? Because these things are spiritually discerned. It doesn't matter how much evidence you have for Christ. If the Lord is not revealing these things to your heart, you just won't get it. 
Think about the evidence after the resurrection. Jesus appeared not only to the disciples, but to more than 500 people. Many people were raised from the dead. But still the religious authorities and the masses rejected him. Because these things are spiritually discerned. They didn't get it for the same reason that the crowds didn't get it in John chapter 6. The Father hadn't drawn them, or at least not yet. So how does Jesus respond to them? He tells them in in verses 6 to 9 that his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. It says in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. This is a common saying in John's gospel, my time has not yet come. Jesus repeats it in verse 8, and we'll find it again in verse 30, where they were going to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in 8.20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The time would come. The time would come for Jesus to be crucified. Finally, at the last Passover in John 13, 1, Jesus knew that his time had come to depart out of this world to the Father. But here in John chapter 7, this time is not yet. Hendrickson explains that for every deed and action of the Lord, and not only for his death on the cross, there is a definite moment determined from all eternity in the plan of God. The will of Jesus being in complete accord with the eternal counsel of God, he naturally waits for the proper moment to arrive. For the brothers of Jesus, there were no such considerations. They had no such conscious contract with the clock of God's eternal counsel. Don Carson says that it's almost as if they're being excluded from divine sovereignty. Not that God suspended his providential reign in their case, but what they did was utterly without significance as far as God is concerned. Now, of course, everything that we do matters. Every action, every word, every thought will be revealed at the great white throne judgment. But with regards to this feast, with regards of of going up from Galilee to Jerusalem for the feast, Jesus' time had not yet come, but his brothers could go up at any time. It didn't really matter when they went. They didn't have a divine mission to fulfill. No one was trying to kill them. Now we see their their allegiance in the next text, in the next verse. Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In John chapter 15, 18, and 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hates me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world could not at this point hate Jesus' brothers because they still belonged to the world. The world hated Jesus because he revealed their sin. It was all fine while Jesus was feeding people and healing and healing them, but when he called them to repentance, things went south immediately. 
It's very similar in much so-called evangelical outreach. Many churches and individuals will, will search out opportunities to serve the community, serving up soup at, at soup kitchens, or helping in retirement communities, or handing out blankets to the homeless. These things are all excellent, and people will like you for it. They might even love you for it. But that's not evangelism. Evangelism, by definition, means sharing the euangelion, the good news. But before people can hear the good news, they need to hear the bad news. Before people find out that Jesus died, they need to find out why he died. If you tell somebody that Jesus died on the cross, it might make them very sad, but they need to know that he died on the cross because of their sin. He died on the cross so that they might be able to be saved from their sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free God of etern is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 So Jesus is saying here that his brothers were still part of the world, that they were still sinners. Now I don't know that they would have fully understand what he was saying that they were under the same condemnation, that their works were evil. So he told them in verse 8, you go to the feast, I'm not yet going up to the feast, because for me the right time has not yet come. So he's saying to them, take your own advice. You go up there. Now the ESV renders this verse, I am not going up to this feast. I just quoted there the, the NIV, which says, I am not yet going up to this feast. And we might be wondering why there's a discrepancy. So in order to do that, we need to take a quick look into textual criticism. Now, we briefly examined this in John chapter 5, and this issue is going to become more crucial when we look at John chapter 53 to 811, which most modern Bibles say shouldn't even be there. However, for now, we need to just take a quick look at the evidence for the not yet being included said so the ESV translation doesn't make much sense if, he, if Jesus is saying, I'm not going up to the feast, because two verses later, he does go up to the feast. Now, we know that Jesus didn't lie, and we know that John didn't get it wrong. So there must be something else going on here. The editors of the ESV Study Bible acknowledge this in the, in the notes and add that, that the Greek verb can have the sense I'm not now going, but to my mind, that's not good enough. When people read their Bibles, it's the words themselves that are relied upon, not, or at least hopefully not, the notes in the margin. But it's interesting that the editors of the ESV Bible actually do acknowledge that in many, as they say, many of the oldest and best manuscripts, they have hupo, which in the Greek is not yet, rather than simply, simply ouk, which means not. And the, the editors acknowledge that they acknowledge that that it's like it's possible that not sorry, acknowledge that that this might have been the original meeting meeting, that it would have been Jesus saying, I'm not yet going up. But then curiously, they add that that though the reading not seems more likely to be original. So I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me that they've just said that the that the the most that the mo, the best and greatest number of manuscripts say not yet, and the likely meaning is not yet. But then they chose to translate it not. 
We need to remember that the original manuscripts of the Bible, it's only the original manuscripts that are inerrant. The, the, what we have today are copies of copies of copies. In fact, we have, there are no existing original manuscripts of the Bible. Now, there's our, our, our Bibles, our modern English Bibles, have been translated repeatedly and errors have crept in. There is no perfect English Bible. But there are differences between translations. Some Bibles are better than others and some are much, much worse. Some paraphrases like the Message or the Living Bible or the Good News Bible cannot rightly be called translations because they, they are so terribly mistaken and so many verses of Scripture. But with, with the best translations, 99.9% .9 of the time they agree and there is no major doctrine that is called into question by the differences. So we really don't have any reason to fear. If you're reading a better Bible, one of the better English Bibles, then you can rely on it. But one of the things that's it's really helpful to do is do when I prepare for a sermon is to examine different versions of the Bible and to compare and contrast where they are alike and where they're different. But don't take the majority view because just like in everything else, the majority is often wrong. If you want to understand whether the, the text should be there or not, you can look to the early manuscripts, but we really don't have access to that because most of us aren't speaking Hebrew and ancient Greek. So that leaves us having to rely on scholars and their interpretation. But the problem there is if we're relying on some scholar, then we're actually relying on something else outside the Bible. And the Bible ceases to be our authority. If you really want to understand whether a passage should be there in the Bible, the best source that you can go to is the Bible itself. Is to compare and contrast Scripture with Scripture. To examine the immediate context and the wider context to see if what is there is, is lining up or contradicts something else. Anything that contradicts needs to be rejected out of hand. And this passage here, the solution is actually quite easy. Because as I said earlier, that two verses later, Jesus goes up to the feast. So we know that it must be not yet. We know that yet, the, the yet must be there. Jesus told them, told his brothers that he would not yet go, but that they could go anytime. But Jesus then a few verses later actually went. He did go to the, to, the, to the feast. But it's not that Jesus somehow changed his mind. It's not that Jesus was sort of scratching his head, oh, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't go, and then went anyway. A.T. Robertson explains that he simply refused to fall in with his brother's sneering proposal for a grand messianic procession with the caravan on the way to the feast. He will do that on the journey to the last Passover. We saw that when we, a few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So what's happening here is, is Jesus is going to go to the feast, but he's not going to go when his brothers tell him to go. He's going to go when God the Father tells him to go. He's not going to go for their reasons. He's going to go for his own reasons, which line up exactly with the Father's reasons. 
So there in verse 10, he did go up. And here we're going to see how his identity is called into question. So after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he went up, not publicly, but in private. Now the Greek word here is kryptos, which, which means in secret. He didn't reveal him his identity. He, he most likely means that he actually just kept to himself, traveling probably at this stage with just the twelve. And he didn't do any public ministry. Now that's going to come, as we'll see later on in the chapter. But there had been a lot of speculation that he would come to the feast and that he would perform a mighty miracle or teach a profound message. So the, the Jews, which is the, Jew, the leaders of, the, of the, the Jewish council, they were on alert. They were on high alert. They were looking for him. But they weren't looking for him in order to worship him. They were looking for him for their nefarious plans. They wanted to kill him. So they asked, where is he? Where is he? The crowds here in the next verse are made up of Jews from all over, and they too were wondering about them. Now, there's a distinction between their response and that of the Jewish authorities. The crowds weren't hostile, at least not yet. They were muttering about him. Now, muttering can either be in the, the positive or the negative sense, and here it was actually both. But at the bottom, it was actually negative. Some were saying he's a good man. They've been thinking, well, his, his teaching is profound. He performs powerful miracles, so God must be with him. But others said, no, he's leading people astray. This group saw him as a deceiver, teaching heresy. They would have thought that the miracles must have been demonic. So there was a sharp division of opinion. Just as there is always a sharp division of opinion when it comes to Jesus. Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There will always be division when it comes to the worship of Jesus. So even though the people here were divided and some appeared to be for him and others against him, their fear of man kept them from proclaiming faith in him. It says in verse 13, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Jewish authorities wielded power, but it was very limited power. Sure, they could put you out of the synagogue. They could even have you killed. We'll see them attempting to do both of these things in John chapter 8. But no one has power like God's power. God wields limitless power, and therefore God deserves our holy fear. One of the amazing things about Scripture is its ability to show us our heart as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. When we see the characters and the events and the teachings of the Bible, we often see ourselves as the Lord reveals these things to us. So in this passage, we see all kinds of responses to Jesus. We talked about this last week. The end result can't be determined by the initial response. 
So here we see the apparent approval by, of his brothers, but it was really, at the heart of it, it was really rejection. And Jesus placed him in the category of the world. Think about the Jewish authorities. They went from initial interest in Jesus in John chapter 2 to wanting to kill him in John chapter 5 and looking for him to do it in John chapter 7. The crowds we see divided as those who thought Jesus good and those who thought that he was deceiver. But none of them were bold enough at this point to proclaim faith in him. So with whom do you identify? Do you identify with the brothers, apparently for Jesus, but actually against him? Maybe you think you're very familiar with him when you read about him in the Bible, but you don't really know who he is. Do you identify with the Jewish authorities, apparently following the Bible, but being openly hostile to Jesus in the way that you live your life? Do you identify with the crowds, quietly in favor of Jesus or against him, more concerned about people than God? Or do you identify with Jesus, seeking the will of God, no matter what the cost? No matter what the cost. Jesus showed that there are two kinds of people in the world those who are for him and those who are against him. But we need not rely on what, what a decision that, that somebody's made in the past, a decision that, that, that you might have made in the past. Are you following Jesus today? Is your heart for Jesus or against him? Or maybe when you think about your loved ones, Maybe somebody that you love and care about still is on the wrong side. But if that's the case, you can take hope. Consider the situation of Jesus' brothers. Even though at this point they were counted as Jesus' enemies, they eventually came to faith. They had an encounter with the risen Christ. Jesus appeared at least to James, and we read this in 1 Corinthians 15.7. By Acts 1.14, Jesus' brothers are numbered among the worshipers. Two of Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, went on to write books of the Bible. Beloved, Romans 13.11 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great salvation you have provided for us in sending your Son to die for our sins. So Lord, we look to you with eyes of faith, trusting you for our salvation, trusting your sovereign plan for our loved ones. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be numbered among the true followers of Jesus. That you would show your faithfulness to us by keeping us faithful to you.
Lord, we pray that you would help us to be good witnesses of you, not fearing man, but boldly proclaiming you out of love and faith to you, out of love to the lost. Lord, we pray that you would help us to shine your light into the hearts of those in whom you have placed our, our paths, Father, that, that we would have the joy of seeing our loved ones come to the knowledge of you as Lord and Savior. That we would have the joy of bringing many lost souls to new life in Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.